Okay, I want you to hold one finger in Titus and another finger in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Um, how many of you guys know what the Great Commission is? The Lord said that um, the Great Commission was to go into all the world and all the nations and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all things that I have instructed you. And so part of the Great Commission is raising up the next generation of believers, that we, we take what we have and we duplicate it. The church started in Jerusalem, and they were to reach Jerusalem, and then Samaria, and Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so as we, as we reach out, it's how our church started. We came to Tooele, and we planted here in Tooele. But our sending church was another church that sent us out, and eventually God will raise up people and send out of this church, and we'll duplicate as the gospel goes out. And that's the way that God spread the gospel through the whole world, church-wise. And individually, it's the same way. God sends you, and you got saved, and you get raised up. And then you start to pour in and share, share the gospel with the neighbor, and, and then they get saved, and then what do they do? They, they pour in. Now, Titus and Philemon and Timothy were young men that Paul had raised up in the faith. They were his sons in the faith. I have a father in the faith. As many of you guys know, I was raised by a single mom, and my mom died when I was, oh, my mom died. My dad died when I was a year old. My mom had eight kids and never remarried. She didn't actually start dating until my little sister was like a junior in high school, a guy by the name of Bill, and he's my stepdad today, and they're still together, and that was 25 years ago. And, um, but I, wrote, I grew up with a lot of kids and a single mom and, and, and no dad. And so when I, when I became a Christian, one of my favorite verses, and God gave me some nuggets in those days, and I didn't know anything. I didn't know the word. I was fresh out of the world and addiction and um, very green and kind of got radically saved in L.A. And um, a couple verses God gave me, and one of them is he said he was a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widows. And that, that all that years growing up that I had a father in heaven, I can remember. And I don't know how this happened because I didn't really um, grow up understanding this intellectually, but I had an issue in my heart of bitterness that I just didn't realize was there. And I remember I was like in eighth grade, and my mom, again, was super faithful to us as, as kids growing up. And I have the most love and respect for my mom for the choices that she made to put us kids first. I've watched other family members who, you know, don't always put their kids first in life. And, and the kids are being shipped off and there's boyfriends coming in and leaving all the time. And that's always an unhealthy situation. And my mom never did any of that. But I can remember she'd sit on the couch and she drank Coke always. She'd nightly routine. She watched whatever was on Channel 7 or 4, the main shows that were on, the crime shows or whatever they were. And She'd sit on that corner of the couch and drink a Coke and watch her show. And we were there one evening, and, and, and I began to cry, like, like weeping. And I was telling my mom, I want a dad like the other kids. I want a dad like the other. And I don't know where it came from. I didn't, like, have these intellectual feelings growing up that I was missing something. I just didn't think that. But in that time, there was something building in my heart. And, and I was crying. And I was saying, I want a dad like the other kids. And um, when I got saved... God, God had, I was in a church service, in a big church, one of the largest churches in America, Calvary Chapels, Calvary Chapel South Bay. It's in Gardena, California, Pastor Steve Mays, he was one of um, the guys that Pastor Chuck trained personally, and um, big, huge church. And so I went on a Sunday morning, and he invited us back for a prayer meeting Sunday night. And I wasn't in a stage of life where I would have had any interest in going to a prayer meeting. But God had told me I was supposed to be in this prayer meeting, so I go back Sunday night in this prayer meeting, and now this big megachurch shrinks down to about 200 people, and we're sitting all, he has us all sit really close, and, and, and he's leading us, and we're, we're having a prayer. And he looks right at me, out of the blue, I never met him before, I never seen him before, big, huge church, and he says, you have bitterness in your heart, and God wants you to 
um, God wants to heal you from the stage. And I'm like, this is Calvary. This ain't like Pentecostal woohoo church. Like, <laughs> and, and so I start thinking in my mind about things that I'm bitter at and people that I, in high school, I'm pretty fresh out of high school, a couple years out of high school and uh, had, a, you know, some violence in my past. And I'm thinking, man, God, I, I, there's some people that I don't like, but I don't, but bitter is a pretty strong word. I, I don't really hate anybody that bad. And, and I don't think he's talking to me. And it was in that moment that God showed me that the bitterness that God wanted to heal was that I was bitter at my dad because I felt abandoned. And even though my dad died and I understood that again intellectually, emotionally, I, I, had, I, I felt like my dad abandoned me. And, and I began to weep. And, and the Holy Spirit went into my heart. And he touched a place that only the Holy Spirit can touch in your heart. There's certain things that you'll go through in life that, you know, nothing other than the great power of the Holy Spirit touching you and healing something supernaturally can do. You know, this experience I had, and I, I literally felt this, like, weight come off my shoulders that night as God was calling me into something else. And I didn't know it at the time, but before he could use me, before he could even begin to train me, he had to deal with bitterness. Because God can't use bitterness. And as leaders and as pastors, as Christ followers, we can't be bitter at other people. And, 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 and my situation is pretty simple, right? My dad died of cancer. But, but I know people who have been raped, who have been sex trafficked, and struggle with this bitterness. And, and, and to tell those people they have to forgive and they have to let go is difficult. But they do. And we do as Christ followers. And, and, and yeah, I did ministry just by the grace of God in a town, a military town, for a lot of years. And it was um, from September 1st, um, I'm sorry, September 11th, 2001, 9-11. When 9-11 happened, from the time 9-11 happened for the next 10 years, uh, we were at war and, and doing ministry uh, next to a Marine base. A lot of our, our church members and Marines were doing uh, multiple tours of duty. I got some friends that did four tours of duty. I've um, personally know multiple people that died in Iraq doing ministry, Iraq and Afghanistan doing ministry um, near 29 Palms Marine Base. Well, what happened through that was that God had had me doing PTSD counseling. And I'm not a qualified PTSD counselor in the least. Like, I didn't know, I no qualifications, no schooling for it. But, but the Marines were coming and closing the door and saying, Pastor, can I talk to you about something? And they were telling me that they were going to the Marine base and the, the psychologists that are assigned to deal with PTSD. And, and the, the whole um, um, military issue of PS, PTSD has evolved and grown since these days. But it was pretty fresh. And, and it wasn't taken as seriously as it's taken today in knowing that there are real symptoms of tours of duty, especially for a lot of these Marines who were there in the heart of combat, uh, one, of, one of my Marines who, who uh, I love dearly is, you know, he had something like 62 confirmed kills in Afghanistan and Iraq. Four tours of duty. And that's, that's a huge number in the Marine Corps, huge number. And, and, and so anyways, the Marines were saying that they, they, it's hard to get in to see the psychologist. And if they do get in, they don't really have time for them. So what they do is, anybody want to take a wild guess what they do? They write a prescription. And they would say, Pastor, I'm taking these pills and... Am I, as a Christian, am I sinning? Is it, is it, is it bad? Is it, should I be taking these pills? And they said, but if I'm being honest, they are helping me. I haven't punched my wife in my sleep in a while. You know, I'm not having these, these nightmares and these, these dreams. And, um, and, I, and I would just confess, I would just tell them that, you know, that the, you have to understand, I, I, won't, I won't judge the pills. I won't say at all you're sinning. If they're helping you and this is a season you're in, but you have to understand something. 
These pills are a bridge. They're temporary. They're not a solution. They don't deal with the symptom. They deal with the They deal with the symptom, not the cause, not the root. The root of what you're dealing with is deep and it's in your heart. But God, I know a God who can go into the recess of your heart and touch those things and heal those things. And you have to begin and and continue and stay in that process of allowing it. And how do I, you know, I wish I could make the sign of the cross and say Chuck Chuck Mindu and the Holy Spirit would come in and and heal this, this issue, this bitterness, this PTSD, but it doesn't work that way. But God will if you allow him and you stay in the process of sanctification, God will begin and, and one day you'll have a miraculous healing like I had. And that's what we're going to seek. And when you receive that miraculous healing, then you, put those, then you can throw those pills away. You know, unfortunately, there's theology out there that says God is going to heal you. And, and we believe God heals and will heal and is going to heal you. But they say, oh, take the, and people take their glasses off and they stomp on them. And God's going to heal my eyes and... Then the next call is, oh, I crashed my car. I couldn't see while I was driving. And that's not the way God works. But, you know, again, we, we, we got to, or I by kind of default, you know, counsel with a lot of Marines through this season. And I, I got to share with them, again, that testimony that God gave me. Amen? Hey, let's pray for them while, while we're talking about it. That was a little impromptu. I apologize. I haven't even got into Titus. I started it, but... Father God, I thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day, God. I thank you, Father, for um, the the suicide epidemic that's been taking place with our former military um, from all branches in this country, Lord, the 22 suicides a day and the issue of PTSD. And, Lord, first, we're we're thankful, God, for the work that these these Marines, that these these soldiers did, Lord, the Army, the Navy, uh, the Air Force, Lord Jesus, in keeping our freedoms and protecting us, God, and the sacrifices they made. Um, Lord, and we, we pray, Father, as they come home now, and, and many of them now are home for good, Lord, that you would continue this process of healing them and removing this from their hearts, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I started to tell you about the way that um, Timothy and Titus were being raised up by Paul. And Timothy and Titus were these men that he carried on. And so really what Titus is about, as you take it whole, chapter 1, 2, and 3, I could sum it up in one word. And that one word is behave. Or if I, I turned it into three words... It's behavior, or how we should behave, how we should behave. That's not the three words. I had it written down here. Christian behavior and, how many words is that? (laughs) It wasn't three words. I don't know where I got that. Staying on track. But, um, so Christian behavior in the church, in leadership. And, and, and I heard Pastor Dave share with you guys that some of these qualifications, some of these things are about church leadership, but it applies to all of us as Christ followers, that this is the way we are to behave. Now, I don't know, did I tell you guys I wanted you to open up to Titus and hold one finger in Acts? Okay, so we're in Acts chapter 1. Um, I, I believe there's a reason that God gives us this discipleship model that Paul is taking these men under his wing. He's, he's completing the Great Commission. He's discipling these young men. Um, what is the purpose? What I get as I read um, Titus, let me encourage you guys something. I feel a lot of rabbit trails on today, so be careful, But because uh, we haven't even got into what I prepared yet today. But as, you, as we study in church, I encourage you guys just to go back on Sunday afternoons or when you read, or hopefully you're already doing some kind of weekly reading plan. And so maybe take a Sunday 15 minutes and read what we're studying in churches on Sunday. Because as I prepare for Titus, one of the things I do is I just read through it without any commentary, without trying to think too much, just trying to catch it. And one of the things that I caught as I read through it was there was a purpose for all of these behavior warnings that God gives us through Titus. 
And I, and I thought, why does God tell us to be gentle and to be kind and, and these behaviors that he's giving us in Titus chapter 3 and that we already got in 1 and 2? And, and I think the answer is in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, um, it says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall receive power. Now, you can't say that word with just power, okay? Because the word in Greek is dunamis. It means dynamite. It means power. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall receive power. And you got to pose like uh, Hulk Hogan. I'm dating myself now. I can't even do it anymore with this one. No? Um, but Hulk Hogan was on a million flexes. But the power of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, when I think of the context of this verse, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I get fired up and I believe, oh my gosh, this power that the Holy Spirit is going to give me, man, it's going to be fascinating. I'm going to shoot fireballs out of my eyes and I'm going to, you know, call locust plagues on your house if you don't receive Jesus. I mean, I don't know what I'll do, but I'm going to have power. But then the verse tells us exactly what the power is for, right? And how God intends you to use this power, and it's it's actually a, a buzzkill. It really is. It's like, oh, come on. I kind of like the fireballs idea, you know. I wanted to fly and shoot fireballs out of my eyes. But he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be. Do you realize the power of the Holy Spirit that God promises over and over again in your life is so that you will be a witness? Now, I can't even share this verse without teaching this truth, but it's not even the verse I'm teaching, is that it doesn't say that you will be, um, you'll become a witness or that you'll witness to, to, you'll go out and witness to folks. It says, that, it says that you will become a witness. It's who we are. It's not something necessarily that we do. It's something that the Holy Spirit flows out of our lives, just like we, you know, we're Christian, we're born again, we're saved, we're a witness. That's a part of who we are. And, and, and the closer you get to Jesus... You can't help but see every person in your life as heaven or hell. Do, do you already process that way? Every person in my life, I see them one way or another, heaven or hell. I love them both the same, but man, when I, when I have those people in my life, and I'm not the judge of salvation, none of us are. I don't know. I could have it dead wrong on every one of them who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. God told me I'm not supposed to judge who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That's not my, my place. When the lead singer of the Grateful Dead, what's his name? Jerry Garcia died. I tweeted out it. He ain't so grateful anymore. That's not right. You know, I mean, I knew better at the time too, but I was judging his salvation. And who knows? He could have got saved. He didn't live his life that way. But I'm not the judge of salvation. But anyways, I see people in my life as heaven and hell. And those that I, I, I fear don't know Jesus, there automatically comes this, um, you know, this need to share with them what I know. You know, my, my best, best way to illustrate this, something I heard a pastor say a long time ago, and it's always stuck with me. I was a brand new believer in an Easter service, and he said, and, and so I didn't do the research, actually. You guys can do the research for yourself. But he said that, um, like in the 90s, um, Lexus designed a brand new safety feature for vehicles. It was state-of-the-art technology that only Lexus had. And Lexus took this technology, and they gave it free to all the other car makers because it was so revolutionary in the safety industry in, in vehicles. And because it was a matter of safety, Lexus gave it away for free. How many of you guys as Christians have ever heard somebody say to you or say about you or about us, you're always trying to push your beliefs on everybody else? You Christians are always trying to shove the Bible down somebody's throat. I just own it. I'm like, heck yeah, open your mouth. Let me get it in there. Like... 
Yes. And, and, and I love it when they say it. I, I love it when they tell me that. I've had, I've, I, was, I worked at Walmart while I was here, and one of the guys while I was working at the Walmart docks recently said that to me. And, and I got to then, it opens the door, because then I can tell them, listen, you're right. But I want to tell you why. It's because I, I have this, this belief that, that, that if you don't know Jesus, you're not going to go to heaven. And, and, and so, I, I, yeah, I have like a safety thing. And if I don't tell you, and I, and I say, this is what I tell them. I say, listen, one day you're going to stand before God. And if what, I'm, what, if I, if what I believe is true, and you don't go to heaven, you're going to hate me. And you're going to say in your heart, why didn't he tell me? He knew all this time, and he wouldn't tell me. And I said, I'd rather you be a little mad at me now and think something of me now than the day you stand before God and you hate me because you realize that I knew and I wouldn't tell you. So, so again, as we get to Titus, and, and this is in context. I am teaching Titus chapter 3 right now, I promise, in its context, because I, I believe that the characteristics that God gives us through Titus, the importance is why do, we, why do we want to do all those things? I think it directly affects our witness to Christ. And, and, and that is important. And you as a Christ follower, you have to live your life in such a way to protect your witness. I remember being a new believer in Jesus. I lived in Hemet, California. I got saved there um, in that Calvary Chapel in South Bay. A friend of mine who was um, a neighbor when we were kids, still to this day, he's one of my best friends. He's a full-time missionary in the country of Georgia. It was the only Christian family that I knew growing up. Um, his name was Jason Havertape. And there, that family, um, they led me to Jesus. And Jason and I were doing the same stuff and living the same um, lascivious lifestyle. And he, got, he rededicated his life to the Lord about a year before I did, and he began to pray for me. And it was through that process. He was in Bible study on Tuesday nights, and every Tuesday night in Bible study, he would ask them to pray for his, his best friend, Chris. And eventually, a year later, I got saved, and I know Jason and his family were instrumental. I have a couple other parts of my testimony, um, other people in my life that were involved as well. But um, he had moved, and his family had moved to Hemet, about two hours outside of L.A., and so I called Jason, of course. He wasn't a part of my salvation story. He wasn't there. He was living two hours away from me, just praying for me. And, and I called him when I got saved. And he said, man, you've got to get out of L.A. And I said, hey, Jay, I've got to get out of L.A. I, I'm trying to stay clean, and I'm having a hard time, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, and uh, I need to get out of here. And he said, well, come live with me. Anyways, I lived in Hemet for a couple years. And, and while I was in Hemet, what was I getting at? Oh, affects your witness. Thank you. I got a job as a welder, and I had never welded before. They were teaching me how to weld, and I was welding. There was a guy in my shop, and I had decided I had enough. I'm going to work tomorrow. I'm going to pound this guy. Like, this is it. So I'm telling Roslyn. I'm telling Roslyn. I said, you know, I'm telling his story or whatever. And, and it took a while. I built it up, and I was trying to be Christian, and, but I had a little tick in my heart. I still had a, you know, God was dealing with me. My boss was a tyrant. He was mean. He corrected me at the top of his lungs. God did it because I needed it. I, had this, I still had this L.A. chip on my shoulder. And I told Roslyn, I'm going to pound this guy. I said, I mean it. I've decided. I've thought about it a long time. And tomorrow, I'm going to pound this dude. And she said, if you do that, you'll lose your witness. That was the first time I was introduced to that concept. And I said, well, if I beat him up, I won't be able to tell him about Jesus. <laughs> kind of strange uh, to think of. But no, of course. Yeah. Oh, I'm not going to lead the guy to Jesus. And, and, and it kind of cooled me off. And I, you know, I, I didn't, didn't go down that way. So, um, again, those things that we do at work, those things that we do in our lives, these behaviors that Paul encourages, they're about our witness. Amen? I think I beat that dead horse pretty good. Let's, let's, uh, let's look at Titus. 
chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authority and to obey and to be ready for every good work. Everybody say good work. Good work is listed multiple times here. And I told you guys that repetition is how the Holy Spirit speaks. So we highlight, we, we underline things when we're reading our Bibles that we realize are repetitious because that's one of the ways the Holy Spirit teaches. Good works is one of those repetitious things in here. Now, chapter 3, verse 1, I don't think I'll spend a lot of time on it, but I'll just say this. Um, because the concept is taught in Romans, and we taught Romans, right? Romans 13:1. you guys know the concept. Paul tells us the same thing in Romans. If you want to turn there, you can. If not, just hang out. It says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Listen, God does not want us to be insurrectionists. God does not want us to be um, out there um, shooting abortion doctors. You know, that was the thing. And the guys that were killing abortion doctors in the name of Jesus, that's not what God has called us to. He's not called us to civil disobedience. I know that's hard. That's really hard in Utah because every one of you have guns and you're itching to use them. But listen, we can go out and we can start, you know, I've talked to people and had conversation and I won't say who had conversations with folks in this church. And they're like, Pastor Chris, I just sometimes want to kill some of these politicians. I think I'll just go and start wiping them out. That'll be my ministry. <laughs> I get it. I understand. Like, I get it. I really get it. You're laughing a little too hard there, dude. Um, well, you weren't the only one. But, you know, the honest truth is, right, how's that working out in California? They got this Gavin Newsom, you know, psycho, and they're going to impeach him. And who's going to replace him? Caitlyn Jenner. I'm like, how, you shoot another one. You're going to shoot him. And, like, there's really no fruit. And, and, and really, as Christ followers, that's not what God has called us to. And, again, that's the flesh, and I understand it. Now, protecting ourselves, defending ourselves with our guns, because I hear you guys as you gun people's minds turning right now. Yeah, but if somebody says something to me, I'm going to shoot them in the face. And gee. Okay, defend yourself, shoot people, do what you got to do. But listen, as a Christ follower, and I know it's difficult, but we have to see this differently. God's not called us to civil disobedience. He wants us to flow with the, with the flow. He wants us as Christians to follow the laws and the rules and, and then, then share and focus on the gospel. Because we, we could shoot the, the politician or the whatever. But what if by some miracle we could lead them to Jesus instead? Now that's fruit. And they could stay in the position where they're at in Jesus' name. Now we can affect change. And so, um, again, you know, the, I, 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 let me just confess something to you guys. I'm a little confused today where I stand. I've always understood it. I thought it was really clear. Paul forbids civil disobedience in Romans chapter 13. Peter and John demonstrate civil disobedience in Acts um, 5 or 6, okay? And so they are told they are no longer to preach the name of Jesus or they're going to be arrested, and they go out the next day and they begin to preach the name of Jesus because now their civil disobedience is justified because it's against God's law, and it violates God's law versus man's law. We're to follow man's law until man's law violates God's law, and then we serve a higher power, we serve a kingdom, we're a part of a kingdom and a God, and we serve him. And so I just thought it was really that clear. And then through this whole coronavirus debate, I'm all the pastors and my friends are, oh, this is internist. And I don't know, it's confused me a little bit, so I'm going to table it for a minute. But that's the simple way that I understood and understand civil disobedience. 
You know, one of our Calvary chapels is in the front lines. A couple of them are actually Bangor, Maine. Um, be praying for them. They're they're in a fight right now with the with the Supreme Court, and it's gone all the way to the Supreme Court. Calvary Chapel in San Jose. Um, Mike McClure is the senior pastor there. They are in the Silicon Valley, and they right now have 2.7 million dollars in fines for them meeting um, through coronavirus. He's been to, yeah, he's been to, tell tell Pastor Mike that. <laughs> They've been through. Now he knows. They've been through court cases. He shared at the last pastors' conference. He actually, because of what he's going through and his testimony is so powerful, he had they had him teach two of the sessions, and he just has this most amazing spirit to have civil disobedience and do it in a Christ-like way. And he stands before the judges and the lawyers, and he's in court, and he just tells them as, as lovingly implied that I'm not trying to be a resurrectionist. I'm not trying to uh, uh, insurrectionist. I'm not trying to cause trouble. He is trying to be a resurrectionist. How cool would it be to just go to the cemetery and be like, I lit the kumi, and they all stand up. But an insurrectionist, he says, that's not our heart. He said, we serve, but we serve a king. And he's not of this world. And we're accountable to him before we're accountable to you. And, and I'll follow what you guys want me to do to a T. And then they meet on Sunday and Monday morning the specter comes by and posts another fine on the door. 2.7 million right now. He got a call from his lawyer. He shared um, at the pastor's conference a couple weeks ago. And the lawyer said, good news. He said, California has dropped their lawsuit against every church in California except for one. And he's like, really? Why? Which one? Well, that's what I'm calling you about. And part of it is they, they're doing ministry in the Silicon Valley. And the Silicon Valley is a stronghold for Satan. They, they have they, the lawyer, I think, and the pastor, they came up with this term. I love it. They call him Fang. Facebook, Amazon. Maybe they didn't come up with it. Maybe you've ever heard of that. Fang. Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. The Fang of, of Satan in the United States and around the world, really, that he's He's got a hold of us with. So um, So anyways, that's about. So they are, again, in a fight, and, and I'm keeping it in context here, that the fight is a civil disobedient fight, but they're in it, and they're doing what God says first, and God's blessing them. And like I said, Pastor Mike was the right guy to be in that church and have that happen because of his ability just to love all the people that are around him. And he's in church. He's inviting the judge to church. He's inviting the lawyer to church. And, you know... And then the, the news is coming, of course, because it's all over the news, major channels, big deal there in the Silicon Valley. And finally, one of the reporters or the managers stops showing up. And they're like, well, you know, one of the reporters is like, yeah, we're just helping them. That church was like 700 when they started. They're 3,000 today. Because <laughs> all the advertising and all this stuff that was going on. And so they stopped. The news people stopped coming because they realized they were just helping them. But pray for them if you think of them. Uh, they, they're still going through it. Calvary Chapel Godspeak in Thousand Oaks was another one that's had a terrible battle in California. Uh, you can pray for them as you well. as well. Be ready for every good work. And then verse 2, it says, to speak evil of no one. How many of you guys are innocent of that? Let me, what, if, what if it says here in verse 2, to speak evil of no co-worker? <laughs> I'm only looking at the, uh, never mind. Um, do not speak evil of co-workers. That's, you know, speak evil of no one. That's just what the Word of God says. I don't really need to comment um, that, that we know that we could be guilty of that. And, and gossip is a sin. Listen, by the way, gossip takes two to gossip. And if you're the type of person that knows everything about everybody else, you might want to look in the mirror because there's a reason why everybody talks to you. 
So I'm not that guy. I don't, I, don't, I don't know everything about everybody. And people don't come to me with all that stuff because I just don't entertain it. And if they want to gossip about somebody, I've just conducted myself in such a way that they understand and they won't come back the next time because it's just conversations are not fun. And I'm not going to, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And did you hear about so-and-so? And keep it going. Verse number two says, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility. So the idea here of peaceable and gentle um, the Greek word um, translates into like brawler or contentious and not to be a brawler or contentious. Now, that's a strong word, right? If I said to you right now, I said to Dan there at the door, hey, Dan, there's a fight out in the coffee shop. You would expect to go out and see maybe two guys duking it out. But if I said, hey, there's a brawl in the coffee shop, you know, maybe you're expecting a Royal Rumble and seven guys on each side or something. And that's the word here to be a brawler and that God doesn't want us to be a brawler. Now, in the context, you probably know that, that, that um, where Titus was doing ministry was in a place called Crete. Do you remember what Paul said to the Cretans? I can't even believe this is a Bible verse. This one's crazy. You guys catch this? Did Pastor Dave teach this, or do I need to reteach it? <laughs> verse 12 of chapter 1, it says, One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And it's true. Like there's a whole group of people the Bible just calls out as lazy and gluttons and, you know, but I guess the Cretans, I guess I could be careful, but I don't know, in my mind, maybe like some New Yorkers have a certain like uh, characteristic or a stereotype, like you're from New York over here, you know, like, like, yeah, how you doing? And they're just, you know, but so Cretans have this, you know, and so this is the area that this church is being planted in and where Titus is doing ministry is to the Cretans. And it's the Cretans that are getting saved. And he tells them, don't be a brawler. Don't be a contentious person. You know, um, one of my favorite verses to quote when people say, oh, I read the Bible and it's hard to understand. Oh, the Bible, I read the Bible and it didn't make any sense. I go, you didn't read the same Bible I read because I'm pretty sure the Bible says, be kind one to another. Is that hard to understand? Pretty sure that's easy to understand, be kind. But that's, again, a Bible concept for us as believers. And sometimes as Christians, we do have a problem with it. And I don't, I, I don't know. I don't get it. I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. Well, don't give him too much. You don't have much to give. <laughs> like, keep the peace of mind and find a way, again, to be kind. And, you know, and it doesn't mean that we're, we're, we're yellow-bellied or that we're, you know, we're soft. That's not, Jesus was not soft. But he was loving and he was kind. And, and for the sake of witness and for the sake of sharing the gospel, he conducted himself a certain way. Amen. And so it says, so that idea there. Um, and then it says, I got a couple more. Oh, verse three. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasure, living in malice, envy, hate, and hating one another. And so... Um, in Ephesians, we have that similar list, right? You, you once were a bad person. You once were um, and all these things, fornicators and idolaters and this and that. But God, we get in Ephesians chapter 2, you know, that idea of but God in the Bible is so powerful. Repeated 40, 50 times in the Bible, that concept in the Old and New Testament, you know, all these bad things. But God, and that's when God shows up and changes your situation. Well, Paul, who wrote Ephesians, also writes this in kind of a similar vein, but only does it in a short thing here where we were something. Now, let's look at it. Verse three. The first one he says is foolish. So foolish is um, lacking um, knowledge of God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So the, the idea of being a fool here is that you just don't understand who God really is. 
And in order for you to understand who God really is, there's only one way you're going to know Jesus and the God of the Bible, and that's if you're a student of the Word of God. Because this is a revelation of himself to you and I, from Genesis to Revelation. And Jesus is on every page of the Bible. And the Bible is Jesus, and about Jesus, and all about Jesus. And to know him, you have to know the Word of God, Genesis to Revelation. And so be in the Word. And that's how we'll deal with foolishness. And, I, and I, we probably all, every one of us today, whether you're new or old in Christ, have some things that we believe or understand about God that are sideways. And, and, and again, um, we, we come to church, we study our Bibles, we read our Bibles to deal with this first admonition of Paul that we don't want to be foolish. And then the second one is disobedient. Now, disobedience and deception in the next word are different. Let me, let me kind of break them down. The first one is disobedient. So disobedient is you, you know the will of God, but you do it not. You're disobedient. You, you're just walking against what God has called you to do or told you to do. He says, do not be disobedient to the Lord. And, and, and the other one, um, deceived, is, is a different kind of idea. It's a different word of deception. And so deceived means that um, it's, its definition is that you're off track or you're led astray. Have you been deceived? Now, I think deceived, we, we, we immediately go to deception being, oh, I believe in false gods. I believe in um, asterisks and bales, and I have, you know, I sacrifice chickens. I'm deceived. Well, no, that's not what this word actually means. It just means that you're off track of where God has called you to be. Amen? So what, what is the, so, so you and I, again, we, we read deceived and we write it off because we know Jesus and we're not deceived. But if we put it in its context, are we on track? Simple test. Simple test for your life right now, whether you're being deceived. Do you do the will of God daily in your life? Simple test, right? Do I follow Jesus daily in my life in a daily devotion? And if you do that, then again, we're, we're innocent of these warnings of Paul. And then the next one is says serving various lusts and pleasures. And that's probably what leads us into deception and disobedience. Um, are the different lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy and hate, hateful and hating one another. I don't have time to break them all down, you guys. i gotta, I got to get going. Um, but it says to hate and hating one another. Now, again, there's no, that's the result of disobedience and deception is that naturally, see, the natural progression towards Christ makes us more loving. The natural progression away from Christ, because it's Satan, and Satan often, oftentimes operates in opposites of God's will, and so it's going to manifest itself in hate, in bitterness, in shortness, in malice, in wrath, and in contentions, and, and brawling, and those kind of things. You, you know, maybe some of you are, genuinely are. Do you guys know somebody that's like really sappy sweet, so sweet all the time? And genuine? I can handle it. The sappy sweet is totally not me. But I can handle it in people if it's genuine. What I don't handle is the sappy sweet on the outside and the bitter on the inside, and they're really not that person, but they're just sappy sweet. Ah, <laughs> you know. But but I, I don't know. I, mean, I have this idea that maybe, and I know it's biblical too. That the heart is desperately wicked above all things who can know it. But I have this idea that each one of us, to some degree, in our heart, we're not naturally kind and loving and care about everybody. That's something that is developed as we develop our character in Christ, amen? As we get closer to Jesus, and the farther we get away from Jesus, and you get into Satan's deception and playing ground, he's going to work on that in your life. He's going to make you a person that hates, that, that is, is, is angry and hates a brother. And by the way, again, John tells us 
you, you can't be a Christian and hate your brother. You can't, you can't love God and hate your brother. They're, they're, they're oxymorons. They don't work. So if you hate somebody, I've already talked about bitterness by a rabbit trail move of God, I hope, this morning. You've got to deal with that, amen? And maybe there's somebody in here. Maybe I shared that for somebody, and somebody's dealing with some bitterness or some hatred. And God is calling you to forgive this morning and to release that. And listen, it's not about them. It's about you. You know, the one, the one uh, I told you, I mentioned sex trafficking in one of the counseling sessions I did for somebody that was dealing with bitterness, and I was encouraging them to um, forgive. And I remember sharing with this young lady, 18, 19 years old, that um, the longer that you keep this individual in your life who sex trafficked you um, and, and you're bitter and angry with him and have unforgiveness towards him, he still has control over your life. And the reason why we forgive him, the reason why we, so we don't have to think about him anymore. And he'll lose the power that he's holding over your life right now. And he's not thinking about you. Bitterness is like drinking poison so the other person will die. No. If you drink poison, you die. They have to drink the poison. And for them to drink the poison, you have to forgive them. Um, and, and that's how that works. And then in verse 4 it says, But when the kindness, everybody say kindness, and the love of our God toward man appeared. We get this, but God, even in verse 4. What is the contrast to, to the brawling and the deceitfulness and the deception and um, the disobedience? Is But God, and how do you get better? How do you get healed? God shows up in your situation. But God, who shows up in love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. The Bible says it's the love of God that compels me. Listen, I, 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 I tell people about hell. Maybe I'm over the top because I have this chip on my shoulder that, oh, I'm a pastor. I'm not afraid to mention hell. Pastors nowadays won't say hell because it doesn't make a big church, and I will. But listen, I understand something about hell too. Hell is taught in the Bible, and it's real. And Jesus believed in it, and when Jesus believed in it and made testimony of it, it solidifies it for me. But hell will not motivate anybody to become a Christ follower. It doesn't work. It might push them a little bit. But ultimately, until somebody experiences the love of Jesus in their hearts, they're not going to get saved. They're not going to change. It's the love of God that compels people, the Bible says. And so here in verse 4, that love of God shows up in this situation to help us behave a certain way so that we can keep our witness. And in verse 5, he says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. Everybody say his mercy. Look at verse 7, about the seventh word. His grace. Together. His mercy. His grace. Let's try that again. His mercy. His grace. Okay, that's the progression we're getting here in verse 5 through 7. Not by works. Look at your neighbor and say, uh-uh, fool. <laughs> Not by works. Hey, works is such a touchy subject. Because Works matters where you place it. If you put the cart in front of the horse, the horse cannot pull. If you put the cart behind the horse, it's in order and it works. Listen, we are not against good works. What we are against is believing that good works gets us saved. Believing that good works makes us better than somebody else. I recently had a conversation with the Seventh-day Adventists, and I don't know... Um, I'll be careful what I say and how I say it. And I always, you know, 
David said, I won't touch the anointing of the Lord. And so I try to be sensitive in these cases. But I also want to tell the truth. I had a conversation with Seventh-day Adventists who believe that we as Christ followers in today in the New Testament should also be keeping the laws of Moses. And I asked them, I said, how does not that not produce in you a self-righteousness? How do you not become better than me? And I said, because I know if, if, I, if I followed kosher laws and I didn't eat bacon and um, didn't eat bacon, and if I didn't eat bacon, that'd be enough right there. Like, I'm better than everybody else. I'm a better Christian than you. But if I, if I did all of those things and followed the law and, you know, and, and, and worshiped on a certain way and, you know, dressed a certain way and all the things that the law of Moses and tried my best to follow it. And I'm watching you who's doing none of those things. You have all the liberty in Christ. Naturally, I'm just going to feel like I'm better than you. You're not going to avoid that or that you're missing something. And, and again, it's not by works. Those works produce something. Now here's the hard part about this verse where he says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy spirit. Now, all of us have um, a system. We probably raise our kids this way, which is good. There's kind of a reward punishment system. You do well, you take out the trash, you keep your room clean, we'll, we'll give you a reward. That's the way we, we raise parents. That's the way we raise kids. It's not bad. But, but we, we take that same concept to the Lord sometimes, and I'm, I'm number one guilty of this. This is where I'm, you know, constantly been walking with the Lord since 98. What is that? About 20-something years, 27, 26 years. And I still, is still my main struggle, or one of my struggles, is that I believe that if I'm doing devotions, I'm getting up in the morning, man, I'm praying, I'm reading good sections of the Bible every day, that God is going to bless me. And that God is going to bless me because of my good works. But it, it doesn't work that way. Now, there may be some things in my life. I may be, and when I'm doing those things, the biblical illustration is I'm in the garden toiling and getting weeds out and digging, so I'm going to produce fruit from those things. But what happens is I believe God's blessing me because of those things, and God won't do that. He won't allow that to happen in my life. So he's not going to until I can get my heart straight because God's going to bless me because he loves me. God's going to bless me because of what he's done. God's going to bless me because it says here his grace and his mercy, not because of my good works. And so we just have to be careful, right? Because, again, it gets this gray area that where, where both are good, but they cross over. And we have to understand that God blesses you because he wants to. You know, some of the, the best times I've had with the Lord are times when I wasn't doing the greatest, to be honest. And I think God allowed it. And I don't think God works this way. So go do bad. And then God will have a great times with God. That's not what I'm saying. But I had bad times. I was like not doing well. I hadn't studied right. And, I, you know, I was just struggling and feeling like, okay, God. And I came to a place in my heart where I'm like, Lord, if you, if you punish me now, if something happens now, I fully get it. You're justified in it, God. And then I show up to the situation, and instead of, like, something bad happening, I've had the best moment with God I've ever had. I was just like, wow. And I'm like, I did not deserve that. And he's like, I know. I know. That's why I did it right now. Because you're a schmuck, and you don't deserve that. But now you're going to see my grace. Now you're going to see my mercy. Now I'm going to show you it's not about you. It's not about what you earn and how good you are as a cross follower of Christ. Now, do I want you to be good and do works and earn? Of course. But I bless you because you're my child and I love you. Any of you guys have some rotten teenagers or rotten kids at times? If you have kids, you better raise your hand or you're lying in church. And you still do something nice for them? And you still bless them? 
and you still let them have ice cream, you make up some excuse so you can feel better about it. Okay, but you know you did wrong. Okay, okay, now you can have the ice cream. Or now you can go eat, you know, or now you can do something. And, you know, we, we bless them because we love them. And so that's the concept here. That's the idea. You know, we should do devos, but God doesn't bless us because we're good at doing devotions. Amen? He wants us to be good at doing devotions. And then he says, um, in verse 5 is the idea, according to his mercy and saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea we find also in those verses is that part of our relationship with Jesus um, requires repentance on our part. Listen, part of your daily prayer, daily life as a Christ follower is repenting. Repenting is not something we do once a month or a holiday that we celebrate once a year and we repent. Repenting is a conduit between you and God that is constantly open. And and when you make a mistake, when you have a thing in your heart, deal with it right then. Ask God to forgive you. Admit it that it's wrong. Admit it that it creates relationship problems between you and God. And confess, confess, confess. And, And with confession, confession is good. But repentance is effective. And that's a change of heart where you've repented and you've asked God to forgive you. And that's included in this. And then he says, verse 6, is that if you, when we do these things, it says God, who because of his mercy, will pour out his Holy Spirit upon us. And verse 6, there's a key word. He'll pour out, poured out on us abundantly. Jesus said, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. You know, like my power word. That word flowing is the same kind of, of power word in the Greek. And the word is torrents. Out of your heart will flow torrents of living water. God doesn't give you just little trickles of the Holy Spirit. God wants to pour out of your life the Holy Spirit. And so if the Holy Spirit is not torrenting out of our lives, it's not on God. It's on our ability to, to be available to the moving of God's Holy Spirit. In verse 7, it says that having been justified by his grace, again, we've already gone over those. It's his mercy, his grace. These are the three Pauline greetings and and keys of Paul's ministry, grace, peace, and mercy, right? And then he says, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. As Christians, you have a hope of eternal life. It's what should motivate you, says here in this verse. For me, it's effective. Hopefully we can um, communicate that. And I can impart that a little bit to you that one of the things that should motivate us in this Christian living now, again, I've already shared that it's the love of Jesus. It's the love of God on our hearts that ultimately is our key motivator. But we have lots of ways that we're motivated. But one of them is this hope that when we die, we're going to go to heaven. And if any of you guys are friends or know somebody who is at heart an atheist or an agnostic or um, believes in evolution and really truly believes that when you die, you go back to the earth. What? I just feel... Be careful, but I do feel sorry for them. My heart hurts for them. It's sad to me. It, w- it would be sad to me to think of a concept where I'm living this life, believing that when I die, I'm just going back to the dirt. I don't even understand why or what. And, and by the way, if, if we die and just go back to the, to the earth, there can be no such thing as morals. It would be nothing I could do would be immoral. You know, if, if there's no consequence. There's no reason. There's no, no reason for me to have any kind of moral standard. I could be the biggest creep in the world and, and be fine with it because when I die, I go back to the earth. But listen, as Christ followers, we have a hope of heaven. We have a hope of eternity. We have a hope of Jesus, and it should motivate us. 
One day we're going to stand before God and give account of our lives and a smiling Jesus. One day we're going to see Jesus. We're going to see the truest face of love for the first time ever in your life. Somebody who's going to be able to look at you for the first time ever with complete love and no regret, with no ill will. I don't care how much your wife loves you, boys. Even she can't look at you and not be thinking about something that you did wrong. She doesn't possess the ability. But God one day will look at you and he won't have any regret. He won't be mad at you for nothing. It'll be the first time you'll see the true look of love, genuine agape love. All right. Um, I had to skip so much because I'd rabbit trailed. Verse number um, eight. Let's go eight. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want to affirm constantly to those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These are um, good and profitable. There we have the term good works again. So I told you guys that was one of the repeated themes. So again, God wants you to do good works. I'm not preaching works today. Just know that you should be doing service unto the Lord as a Christ follower. You know, you should go to church as a Christ follower. And, and, and those things are just things that, you know, we shouldn't have to like kick down your throat that it, as a natural Christ follower, you want to serve him somewhere. You want to have an outlet to, to, to do those things. And then it says, um, and part of that is good works. They can be done in a lot of ways between you and God. And then um, verse 9 says, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. So listen, um, do, avoid people that are that are just want to argue, okay? Um, and then it says genealogies and contentions. Y- y- listen, you cannot make a ministry out of doing exactly what Jesus told us not to do. For example, Jesus said, do not divide the wheat and the tares in the church. In the church, you're going to have wheat, which is good, fruit, healthy Christians, and tares, bad. The tares are going to try to choke out the wheat. If you go into the body of Christ and you try to take out the tares... You're inadvertently going to cut wheat, and God says, and Jesus forbid it. I had a woman call me, and she said, oh, yeah, I want to interview you. I want to check your church out, and I want you to fill out this 50-question uh, 50 questionnaire. And then at the end of it, I'm going to tell all the – I got this website, and I'm going to tell everybody what kind of church you are. And I go to her website, and she's just ripping people up, down, one side, the other, these churches that she's interviewed in the past. And there was like 12 churches, and two of them had a good review, and 10 of them were these warnings that she was giving. And, and so I call her back, and I talk to her, and I say – you're, you're trying to make a ministry doing exactly what Jesus said not to do. You're trying to decide which churches are wheat and which ones are tares. And I said, how can you make a ministry or pretend to have a ministry doing exactly what Jesus said not to do? And this is the second place in the scripture where Jesus says, don't fool or the Bible says. And when I say Jesus says, even though we're in writings of Paul, Jesus wrote it still. Hey, right? I can still say that doctrinally be correct. Um, he says, avoid genealogies. Avoid disputes. A- a- avoid these foolish things. If you're talking with another Christian and you're arguing and you're both angry about something that really is not a salvation issue, just stop. And then in verse 10 he says, reject a divisive man after the first or second admonition. Some people have honest questions. You answer those the best you can. Some people will ask the same questions with not, no honesty. They just want to argue. You're never going to change their heart. They're never going to change your heart. God says, do not cast your pearls before swine. Pearls is the word of God. A swine is somebody who will not receive the word of God. So you have to use discernment. In Proverbs, it says, do not answer a fool according to his folly. And the next verse says what? 
Answer a fool according to his folly. Why does, is God confused? No, God's not confused. But by discernment and the wisdom of God, there's times where you do answer a fool according to his folly when you discern that there's a softness of heart and it's a question that's honest. There's a time when you do not answer a fool according to his folly because you've discerned that now you're casting pearls before swine and this guy just wants to argue. And then it says here to remove them from the church if they cause division. We have people sometimes we've had to remove from the church and they say, oh, you have to use the Matthew 18 uh, model on me and, and go through this process that's laid out in Matthew 18 to remove me from the church. And I say, no, I don't. I got a trump card. You're a divisive person. And the Bible says multiple times that if you cause division, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. And that's the end of that. Um, so that, that's the, the advice that God gives. All right. Amen. Hey, the last four verses, salutation, read it. I'm not going to cover it because I do want to cover one more thing. Don't put your Bibles away just yet, please. Okay, we'll be done, I promise. Give me three minutes. Yes? If you got to go home, I'll, I love you. I'll see you later, okay? We'll all wave at you when you leave. Um, three minutes, three minutes. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Today's the day of celebration. We have in this church just completed the entire New Testament. <laughs> yeah, that was the last chapter and verse in the entire New Testament. Um, we planted this church in September of 2013, um, and we started in the Gospel of Luke, and we've taught all 27 books in the New Testament, and a couple Old Testament, a couple pull-out messages and different things over the last eight years. But since September of 2013, we have now just completed all 27 books in the New Testament. And guess what we're going to do next week? We're going to start over. I think I'm going to start in Revelation. I hate to like that. I hate to take that. That's such a good book, and I get. I have to do it right now, and then I don't get it for the rest of the eight years. But that's okay. We're gonna do it. We're gonna. I think we're gonna jump into Revelation. I believe we're gonna do that because I think that's what the Holy Spirit's telling me to do. So uh, unless He tells me something different, I might take a couple weeks um, and do some Old Testament stuff because we normally don't teach Old Testament on Sunday mornings. But we have just completed the New Testament. You guys in Nehemiah eight? Okay, this is our celebration Sunday. So church is over. Now we're partying. So you guys can relax. Okay. Children's ministry told me I could have a couple minutes to celebrate today. Okay? Chapter 8, verse 1. Now all the people gathered together as one man in one in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law and Mo of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Anybody, the youth group, the younger, they all came together, men and women. Now, if you know the context of Nehemiah, they'd been in 70 years of, of captivity, 490 years in the land of Israel and Canaan, that 490 years ago, um, they crossed the Jordan coming out of Egypt after the 40 years in the wilderness, 490 years in the land. They got into captivity, 70 years in Babylon. They're coming out of it. Nobody in Israel has been reading the Bible or studying God's word for a long time. And, they, and Nehemiah says, go and get the word of God and let's read it before the people. And so they go and they, and they repent and God is doing a work. They're going back into the land after the Babylonian captivity and they begin again to read the Bible. And it says, then he read from it in the open square and it was in front of the water gate from the morning until midday. Before the midday, the women and those who could understand and the, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So this is how we do church. All the ears of the people are attentive. All you guys are all attentive, right? God says you have to listen. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But they were attentive. 
In verse 4, so Ezra the scribe stood on a platform with wood, and they had made and the purpose besides. So he stood up on a stage like I'm standing now. And, and then these guys, in verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people on the stage. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Let's stand together. One of the things that Chuck Smith used to do traditionally is at the beginning of every service, they would stand and read the Word of God together. They would do comprehensive reading. They would read one verse. The audience would read another verse. I just wanted to highlight that, and that's where it comes from. It comes out of the Bible every great once in a while. When, I, when we're going to do a Bible reading, I'll ask the church to stand. Um, so this is why. Now, what's fascinating is they're reading the Word. They're studying the Word. Now, this is Old Testament, right? But what I think I, I want to point out is that even throughout history, that God's plan was pretty similar And they did what we're doing today. What we're doing today, God had his people doing thousands of years ago. And and you'll see, read this chapter when you get home. What you'll find is everything they did is exactly what you guys did this morning. We read the word of God together. We worshiped together. We, you know, the, the, the guy that was reading it stood up so the people could see him. And just practically, just not because he was different or set apart, just so they could see him and hear him. And all the people stood up, verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Did anybody Amen me during my sermon today? Amen. If not, you get a chance to make up for it right now. God is good. What, what, is, what does Pastor Isaac say? Hallelujah. Amen, Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So all the people amen So hey, it's Bible. If you guys go to a different church and your pastor don't like when you amen in the middle of his sermon, just take him here and say, hey, it's Bible, pastor. And while lifting up their hands, how many of us raised our hands in church today? This is, this is 3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, good, 25 to 3,000 years ago, right? They're in church, they're amening, they're standing, they're raising their hands, they're worshiping. They worship the Lord with their faces to the ground, and Joshua and that it other names help the people understand the law. Listen, and the Levites, verse 7, what did, what did the leaders do on the stage? They helped the people understand the Bible. What do the pastors and churches do today? If, if they have any salt, they just try to help the people understand the Bible. Amen? Simply just teach the Bible. But it's what we've been doing. It's what God has had his people doing. And in verse number 9 at the bottom there, it says, Is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the Lord. They wept because the words of God were so sweet and had been neglected for so many years in the house of God, in the house of Israel. And then it says in verse number 11, And then, then he said to them, Go your way, eat, drink of the sweet, and send portions for those whom nothing is prepared. They gave. When they ate and drank and they gave, they gave to the house of the Lord. And, and that's what we do today. We gave. Many of you gave to the Lord today through the tithes and offerings. Day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Verse 12 says, And all the people went their way to eat and drink and sent portions and rejoice greatly. Let's rejoice greatly. Amen. You can also rejoice because I'm done talking. You put your Bibles away. Hey, love you guys. Thank you guys so much for your patience today. Um, and thanks for sitting through eight years of Bible teaching. Let's, 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 uh, let's do this real quick. Who, who was here our first Sunday? Anybody still here was our first Sunday? Susan was here. My wife was here. Dan was here. Dan and my, my family. A few of you. All right. On our first Sunday. I know a lot of you guys came in that first year are still here too. So, Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the victory of, of the power, Lord, of simply teaching the Bible, how it changes lives. 
how it grows people. And Lord, it teaches us how to be Christ followers. And we thank you for that. And we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said...